It was Madame W who gave me the tickets to the auction that led to the enclosed pages being discovered. Generally speaking, such engagements hold very little interest for me, and this one was no different, or maybe even less so, as the items up for bidding formerly belonged to a widower who had passed six weeks earlier and the deceased's effect were being sold off to pay for various debts. Madame W insisted nonetheless, for, according to the catalogue she pressed into the table during lunch a few days prior, a medium-sized decorative box was up for grabs. It's worthless, as far as I can tell, she informed me. But I am in search for a new item to place in the music room, and this seems perfect. I would certainly go myself, my dear. But, as you know, I will be up north paying my niece a visit. I was given further instructions to keep the price reasonable, send the bill of sale to her forwarding address, and repayment will be paid in full upon her return. What about the contents, if there are any? I asked. Do with them as you wish, Madame W replied, waving her hand dismissively. They are no of concern to me, only the box. And so it was. A few days later, I found myself in the auction hall, surrounded by gawkers, pawnbrokers and tasteless collectors. Luckily, the hall wasn't too densely filled in and I was able to find a seat that not only provided me with a quick exit after the item had been presented, but also room enough as to not get caught up in meaningless conversation. I flipped through the lot catalogue that had been handed to me upon entry and found the box I was tasked to bring home. Lot 46. I leaned back in my chair and marvelled at the vast amounts of purple and yellow dresses and suits reflecting off the white walls. An hour and a half later, the box was finally brought out and placed delicately on the show podium in the centre of the stage. Our next item up for bid is a locked decorative chest which, according to documentation provided by the deceased's children, once belonged to an esteemed scientist, a Dr. Wilcox, the auctioneer belted out. The box itself caused a small bit of a stir, for it was much more appealing in person. But to the second part, this introduction of a Dr. Wilcox, obviously tossed in the description as an attempt to gain a higher bid, not a murmur was heard. I had completely put his name out of my mind until it came flooding back much later in circumstances that will be enclosed. As for the bidding, the process went smooth enough, and though a few other members of the audience forced the price up a little higher than I wanted, I still prevailed, and was soon signing the bill of sale and making arrangements for it to be brought to my home. As I was leaving, a sort of bidding war had broken out over an out-of-date watch. The next morning, the box arrived with a pleasant note thanking me for my attendance and participation. I immediately wrote out a quick letter to Madame W, telling her of the success I had in procuring the box and sent the letter, as well as the auction house note and bill of sale off to her. For the box itself, I had brought it into my workshop so I could work on removing the lock and clearing out any remaining items that might have been left inside. This I did later in the afternoon, and it was then the name Dr. Wilcox emerged once again. Removing the lock was easy enough. There wasn't much in the box, actually. Some old medical books and an apron with an odd smell. However, beneath all this was some pages wrapped in cloth. Initially, I didn't understand what I was reading, but soon the subject matter began to sink in and a wave of shock shot through my body. I am still not entirely sure what to make of it. 
I have enclosed several pages within and wait eagerly for your interpretation. It seems to me Dr. Wilcox was attempting to demonstrate the human soul had weight before he became obsessed with, I guess we could call a side effect of his experiments. The main body seems to have been composed by Dr. Wilcox himself, but it is the last page I found particularly interesting, for it seemed to have been written by someone else. In enclosing these pages, I ask that you not allow anyone else to see them until we have spoken. March 3rd. Prophelia Podcast Network, Dark Stories from the Campfire Podcast, combines the storytelling styles of Victorian ghost stories and folklore to present to you original horror stories that'll force you to curl up tighter next to the fire. Available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are listened to. For the past few years, my colleagues have developed the obsession of measuring and weighing the body, the brain, the skull, liver and kidneys, all in a vain attempt to discover the perfect specimen. While all these are noble in their own way, their questions will all remain incomplete, for they forget the very essence of what makes a person, namely the soul. But how can one deny an aspect of the body that is believed to exist in one form or another across the world? The purpose of my study in which I am to engage in is not only to prove the soul exists, but that since it inhabits the body, such as the skull or brain or kidneys, then it must have mass and therefore weight. To this end, I have purchased an industrial scale that has been collaborated to detect the faintest changes in weight. For my subjects, I have made an appointment with Amesbrook Sanitarium to discuss my plans with an assistant ready to speak with their families should a certain patient be selected. Currently, I have a room attached to my laboratory with six beds, complete with linen and have hired a nurse as their caretaker. All my colleagues tend to prey upon recently executed prisoners to sustain their studies. This would be impossible for me. For the very reason I must have enough access to track the subject's weight prior to and during the exact moment of death, not a second before or after, I need that crucial moment when the soul exits the body. March 10. The six subjects have been chosen and each assigned a number. There are over 20 available candidates. However, the six that were chosen are furthest along in their disease and have deteriorated to the point of only a few weeks left, which is ample time to collect specimens and measurements. I have created a log, which I share with my assistant, that will measure key components, sweat, weight, food and fluid intake and waste from the bowels. Each subject has also been given hospital gowns that have all been confirmed to weigh the same. Their daily routine will be as such. Each subject will be fed exactly three pounds of food throughout the day, the largest portions being their breakfast, lunch and supper meals and three litres of water per day. 
All bowel movements from the food and fluid intake will be done in a special metal bucket, which also have been determined to all weigh the same, as the disease affects weight and those that suffer from it have been reported to lose massive quantities due to their affliction. Each subject will be weighed five times per day upon waking each morning, before bed and three times during the afternoon. I hope this first round will yield tangible results. March 20. First opportunity to test my hypothesis came today at 8:33 p.m. It had been known throughout the day that subject 4's death was imminent, with most of the afternoon spent prepping the lab and scale. Then, finally, at 8 p.m., when the subject's breathing became shallow, they were carried carefully to the scale, being placed on their back. A half an hour later, with my assistant watching their mouth and myself the scale, the subject expired, with their head resting on the metal scale without rebound. Accounting for sweat and bodily fluids, I recorded a weight difference of 19 grams. While this is only a start, this is a promising result. By my calculations, I should have my first paper ready for presentation and publishing within a month. March 24, subject 2 was the next to be brought into the lab. The same procedure was replicated for subject 4, with my assistant watching the mouth and eye the scale. Negative results. Either the scale wasn't properly calibrated or the weight difference immeasurable. This can't be accurate. Subjects 1 and 5 are being prepped and I will soon be able to determine why subject 2 was the anomaly. I also ordered 4 more beds and sent my assistant back to Amesbrook to select patients closer to their end as results are coming much too slowly. March 26. As predicted, subjects 1 and 5 expired. The procedure from the last two were replicated in their entirety. Results were negative. Neither subject showed any difference in weight and when taking into account the control factors, I have ordered the scale to be recalibrated and have written the manufacturer to inquire about any defects they might be aware of. At this point, I have no solid data to present or publish. April 2. Four more subjects expired over the course of the week. The same procedures were done for each subject and detailed notes were kept. All results were negative. My general conclusion would have to be while the soul does take up space in the body, the weight itself is variable, with some being heavier than others, with the majority being too light to measure. However, while discussing the new results with my assistant, he made a curious comment. He has observed since he has tasked with watching the mouth during the time of death, right before the subject released their last breath, something is muttered and their eyes get wide as though looking at something. What they may be saying is he isn't sure. I tried to assure him that it was nothing to concern himself with as the body on the point of departure tend to quiver and seize and what he has witnessed may be nothing more than a trembling of muscles. However, he has insisted that this is not the case, that words are being formed as the subjects are looking at something. I have decided to appease him and take his spot for the next subject. April 5. Upon laying the subject on their back on the scale, my assistant and I switched places, so as to confirm the lip movement was nothing more than a minor tremble. The subject took almost 40 minutes to expire. Not once did I look away. 
Shortly before the last breath was released from the body, the subject's eye did widen and she slightly turned her head as though focusing on something behind me, whispered, then perished. I am stunned. I immediately ordered the next subject to be prepped and brought in. It took almost all night, but at approximately 2am, the subject slightly turned their head, whispered and passed. Only this time I made out the word mine. This is a revelation, of course. I could find nothing in the medical journals to describe what I had just witnessed. Nothing that would lead me to understand what the subjects are seeing or saying. It is now my belief that at the very moment of death, the subject is trying to describe one last vision. Perhaps they are experiencing a religious experience? Some noted ethnologists have produced writings on the subject and have indicated that members of certain cultures upon the hour of their death act as though possessed by some external entity. My mystics have also been said to have had magical visions. For now, I must keep pressing forward. May 12. I have increased the beds by another four and had my assistant replace what subjects we had originally with those further along in their disease. I have adjusted the subjects rations from three pound per day to half a pound for a morning meal and supper. Over the course of the last three weeks, 10 subjects have been observed with eight showing the same pattern of gazing and whispering. I have developed covering that fits upon the mouth, attached to a tube that will help amplify the whispering, or to at least help clarify what is being said. Verily, thus far, I have not been able to comprehend any of the subjects' last words. I can, though, make out bits and pieces, but much like a dream, the words that can be understood are ephemeral passing quickly as soon as the next syllables are uttered. It is as though whatever vision they are describing is not for the living. But what are the visions? If I could get some indication as to what is being seen by another means. May 18. For the next two subjects, once placed upon the scale, I have instructed them to either write or draw as best they can what they are seeing. The mouth covering is still attached so I can listen. My plan was to listen while watching what was being written on the page. Of course, my initial fear was the subjects would be too weak to hold any type of writing utensil. This was proved accurate, unfortunately. Even with one of us helping the subject hold the pen in their hand, the experiment was unsuccessful. Even if it was, I would not be sure if the image on the page was the subject's or something produced unconsciously by myself or my assistant. Perhaps if I could slow the process down somehow. May 21. I have acquired a substance that will slow down the dying process, thereby giving the subject more time to describe, whether verbally or written, what is being seen. The substance was mixed in with one of our subject's food this afternoon. They were not particularly close to passing, but close enough where enough strength would still reside within the body. Within a half an hour, the subject began showing signs that the main effects had begun to take hold, and they were quickly prepped in the lab. Previous procedures were ignored. Together, my assistant and I sat close to the subject, engaging in trivial conversation at first, but then asking more pointed question as their breathing began to slow. Look around and describe what you see, we asked them. Do you hear anything? Describe any sensations that they may be feeling. 
for almost three quarters of an hour, we persisted with our inquiries and pressed upon them our desire to know anything they might be able to tell us, anything odd feeling or anything they believed to be out of place in the lab to inform us immediately. We sat with bated breath, urging, pleading with the subject for anything, but when the final effects of the substance did its duty, the subject, like all the rest, fell into the same behaviour, then passed. We were left with no answers. It was clear, though they saw something. Final entry, no date, written in someone else's handwriting. Oh, my friends, rejoice, for I have kept a great secret from you. And what would you do with the truth anyway? That great amalgamation of perceived realities? To be sure, the scale was operational in its entirety. I merely manipulated it for my outcome. Can you imagine the repercussions had his experiments been successful? People running around fearful? That simply would not do. It was only a happy accident that he discovered the visions. I do provide these. Of course, it's different for everyone. For Dr. Wilcox, though, his was to witness himself standing in front of me with fingers curled around his shoulders, pressing down. Oh, he took the substance, all right, in a vain attempt to decipher a puzzle that doesn't exist. His assistant, feeling the negative effects of pushing his subjects to their premature deaths, was a little overzealous in mixing the substance in his drink. In fact, the assistant wasn't even in the room when Dr. Wilcox began to slip away. Dr. Wilcox saw his truth. His assistant felt theirs. Rejoice and celebrate. I implore you to do so. Years from now, in this box, someone will discover this and I welcome it. For so, I created them free and free they must remain. Good evening, guys, ghouls and girls. Thank you for tuning in to my latest scary story, this one, named A Soul's Weight, was written and sent to me by my wonderful friend Stephen over at Dark Stories from the Campfire. Links to his podcast will be in the description below, but before you click over there, let him introduce his podcast to you. Prophelia Podcast Network Dark Stories from the Campfire podcast combines the storytelling styles of Victorian ghost stories and folklore to present to you original horror stories that'll force you to curl up tighter next to the fire. Available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are listened to.